Hey there. I'm glad you've tuned in to the No Water Methodist podcast. I'm Jeffrey Rickman. I'm the preacher here. And uh, this podcast is going to be me preaching. Surprise, surprise. A lot of you tuning in have listened before. You know what you're getting into. If this is your first time listening, uh, my heart is for getting people plugged into local churches. I think church is a big deal. I hope that comes through in my preaching and teaching and leading. Um, I think church is much more than a social club or going through the motions. It's, it's intimate relations. So as I'm preaching on this particular topic today, this is Jonah chapter 2. Jonah's prayer from inside the whale, or a, a blessing to God, a, a prayer to God, a, a song. It's about descending to the realm of the dead. And then, of course, uh, if he does die there, and that's kind of a question, not for some people, but for me, um, then the question is, you know, what what does the realm of the dead have to do with us now, and particularly our, our dearly departed loved ones? This just so happens to coincide with All Saints Day, and as the season gets colder, it's an untemperately uh, or a un- abnormally warm day here, but as the cold season comes, people always uh, die at high fr- frequencies, higher frequencies, and uh, it's just a hard time of year for people, you know, and so we're just a couple weeks out from Advent beginning and then Christmas. It's the second busiest time of the year for a lot of pastors. It's the first busiest for a lot. A lot of churches get real concerned with the liturgical year or just the the all the motion, all the the stuff going on, all the activity. And that's not really where I direct people. I direct people towards a, a deep meditative reflection on these most important things. And as I'm talking on these things, um, the the sermon you're about to listen to is the last sermon that my sister Jill ever heard me preach before she died. She was in worship on the back row, and she died a couple nights ago, and uh, I'm just really glad that I got to minister to her, and then after I got done preaching, I got to serve her communion, and um, I don't know. We serve a really good God. We have a really good faith. I'm just so thankful and grateful. It's you know, Christians are this really weird people in America where the culture is very obsessed with light, positive, always got to be happy, and and Christians, we don't have to do that. You know, the, the darkness holds no real threat for us. You know, our the darkness doesn't comprehend the light, as we're told in John chapter 1. And so we can talk about Jonah being swallowed by the big fish or the sea monster, whatever he is, and we can look at our own lives and see our own suffering and persecution and turmoil and tribulation, and we can realize that God is in that, and if God is in it, then we're going to be okay. So um, there's a lot of depths of knowledge and, and wisdom here, and I'm not going to do it justice because uh, I'm a fool, but uh, you know the Word speaks for itself, so I hope you really enjoy hearing God's Word over the next little bit, and uh, I would just ask you to pray for my church community, if you're a member of our church community, that um, that God would send His Holy Spirit powerfully and that He would equip us to minister to this town and love one another so that people look at us and go see how they love one another. It's a really wonderful church we have here, and we lost a wonderful saint. But when we have Christ, we have all. Anyway... Uh, I'll be done preaching for now, so you can 
listen to me preach some more. Enjoy. We've been making our way through Jonah. It's been a surprisingly fruitful book. We're on chapter 3 this week, page 1443 is where you can find it, and I always advise you to double-check my reading and my work. I think a lot of damage has been done in the church by trusting leaders too much. Not that I'm not trustworthy, but you shouldn't have to trust me. You should be able to find this stuff yourself. For those of you who haven't been able to, to be with us in either of the previous two Sundays, I want to urge you to, to listen to the proclamation of the word the last two Sundays, you can find it anywhere. You can find podcasts. Just type in Noata Methodists, plural. The story of Jonah follows a prophet of the 8th century B.C. That means almost 800 years before Christ was born. The prophet Jonah, son of, son of Amittai, was a, a northern prophet proclaiming the word of God to a faithless generation there. We don't know exactly what year this particular story takes place, but we know that, that Jonah was active in the year 780, so it's in the decades before or after that. I found there are all kinds of fun renderings of what it would have looked like for Jonah to uh, be swallowed by this big fish. The, the Hebrew is dagadol. Uh, you've heard me make the case in the last two weeks for it actually being a, a, a sea monster created on the fifth day of creation. Yeah, um, Children, we haven't recited in worship, it's not a catechism question, but we've memorized what God created on the seven days of creation. Let's see how we do. What did God create on day one? Light. Matthew got it. The rest of y'all need to be louder. What did God create on day two? Sky. What did God create on day three? All right, preachers, girls, smoking you. Land and plants. What did God create on day four? Sun, moon, and stars, the astral bodies, okay. What did God create on day five? Good, air creatures and sea creatures. What did God create on day six? What did God create? Animals and humans, if you didn't hear that, the land creatures. What did God create on day seven? He rested. He didn't create anything. Very good. Okay. Kids, you did okay on that one. Let's see if we can do a catechism question better. Why was it necessary for Christ the Redeemer to die? Christ died. Y'all heard more than one verse, one voice, didn't you? It's not just the preacher's daughter. Christ died willingly in our place to deliver us from the power and penalty of sin. And to bring us back to God. And that's what we're doing here today, isn't it? We're renewing our covenant with God and one another. Amen? Amen. All right, let's, uh, let's look at this first rendering I found of... Isn't that a cool picture? Sorry he's naked. I didn't even think of that whenever I posted that. There might have been one of him fully clothed. I just I, When it's in this style, I don't even register that someone's naked. Uh, but they at least hid the important part. And you see the dagadol behind him, right? That doesn't look like a whale, does it? This is, this is public domain. That's why you can use it. I won't get sued for this. Um, so, uh, there are a lot of others. We've already put some on some of our other stuff, but I encourage you, it's, it's fun to just look at the way that people have drawn this over the years and try to imagine what it would have been like. If you were here for last week, I, I, I came down on the side that I believe he actually died in the belly and was resurrected whenever, uh, right before he got spat out. It doesn't say that. 
there's a lot it doesn't say. We have to fill in a lot of blanks. But he recites that poem that does talk about descending to the realm of the dead. So I, I find that useful. Let's go to the next slide. Um, this is a map of the area that we're dealing with. I've already shown you this map, but the blue circle right in the middle is, uh, you see on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea, that's modern-day nation-state of Israel. It's also the ancient kingdom of Israel. Actually, at this point uh, here, the northern and southern kingdom had already separated. The northern kingdom is Israel. The southern kingdom is Judah. But then you see the big red circle up in the northeast. That is in what's called... Um, uh, the Fertile Crescent. This is between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. You can see two big rivers southeast of the Red Circle. And you see all that green area. That's where it was verdant, and it was easy to grow lots of crops. So until very recently, we believed that this was the very first area that civilization emerged. I say until very recently because we have found archaeological evidence that goes back further than what is called Sumerian civilization here. It's also called ancient Mesopotamia here. Actually, I think the Fertile Crescent is where Israel is. And you notice um, southwest of Israel, that is, uh, heck, what was that river called? No, Jordan River went through Israel. What's the one that uh, the Egyptians used? The Nile, thank you. The Nile flowed north into uh, the Mediterranean Sea. That's where the Egyptian culture was. And you see at the height of its power, this shows the Assyrian Empire it had to take over, it wanted to take over the Egyptians, but what, what's between Egypt and Assyria? Israel. So that's why Israel had to get knocked out. That's why the Assyrians were, over a period of time, assaulting them. Now let's go to the next slide because it shows these military campaigns that the Assyrians had over the course of hundreds of years. The Assyrian Empire began, uh, I've got a timeline, uh, almost 1,500 years before Jesus. And it was only defeated about 800 years later. How old is America? Not very old, not nearly that long. So most people in America today don't even know about the ancient Assyrian Empire. The ancient Assyrian Empire was around almost three times longer than we've been around, if you can imagine. Most people should know their name rather than America because they uh, invented writing called the cuneiform, they, they uh, circulated the lingua franca of that day. That's the language you had to do to do trade. Aramaic. Jesus spoke Aramaic. Aramaic was popularized by these guys. They came up with all kinds of uh, warfare that was used for thousands of years. They, they were hugely influential across the world and in that area. These were the OG imperialists uh, of the world. They were a big deal. And they were gnarly as any imperial power is, uh, and they had a series of campaigns. You see the dark areas where they started out, you see the light areas where they spread to, and you'll see there are different dates. You might not be able to see it, actually. There are different dates. They didn't expand all at once. It was a series of military campaigns over the course of hundreds of years where they're fighting down more and more towards Israel. So Israel hates them. They're constantly threatened by them, assaulted by them. They've lost sons in battle to them. They've had daughters kidnapped into slavery by them. These are an imperial power that they hate. They worship another god. Ancient Mesopotamian religion was a polytheistic religion. They had many gods. Their primary god in the Assyrian Empire was Asher, where they almost certainly got their name, Asher, Assyrian, Assyrian. People named after their key god, but they had hundreds of gods, probably, that they served. 
Yahweh might have been one of them, but they did not acknowledge him as the creator God, king of kings, lord of lords. They acknowledged him as just one minor God among many gods. So that'll be something to keep in mind in a little bit whenever a prophet from Yahweh comes proclaiming the word of Yahweh. Let's go to the next one. This is the timeline that I came up with. I thought I had three slides there. Oh, okay. I just skipped over it. Man, that stinks. It was a good timeline. But I showed it, I showed it to you a couple weeks ago, so um, I'll, try and, I'll try and remember to show it to you next week. It's just important for us to understand this is real history. You know, we open our Bibles and we go, okay, yeah, Jonah, son of Amittai. Uh, how much of this do I have to care about? Assyrian Empire, Nineveh. Uh, these are real places with real people that were once upon a time hugely influential. Nowadays, we, we try and just mine it for the, the moral of the story that we get from it. We forget that this is real history that impacted real people. And one thing that we really need to understand here is ethnic hatred. And this is one of the areas where the news cycle really is helpful because we just saw on the global scale... Uh, a huge instance of, of, of ethnic hatred whenever Hamas and many Palestinian civilians broke into the southern region of Israel and killed over a thousand people. Uh, not just uh, uh, executed, but tortured, maimed, uh, terrible hatred. Uh, not just adults, but babies, old people. How, we in our nation, we're so civilized we can't understand this. We don't have ethnic hatred Really, I mean, we have a little bit of ethnic tension in our country, but we don't want to kill another race's babies. I can guarantee you, none of you here sits and fantasize about killing the babies of your enemies. That's what ethnic hatred looks like. And that is what is going on between the Israelites and the Assyrians. Okay, the Assyrians think that they are a master race that the gods have smiled upon, and everyone else outside of them is a lesser race that needs to be civilized by them. The Israelites believe that they are God's people, and these heathens are encroaching into God's territory, and just like the Ammonites, just like the Moabites, just like the Edomites, just like all these surrounding people, God is going to put in their place because they are unholy, ungodly, undeserving of God's love. They are not part of God's chosen people, the Jews. So that's something that we have to keep in mind here. We hear these words and they don't necessarily carry much meaning to us, but Jonah has been sent as a prophet to these people that he hates. That's part of why he said no, surely. Surely that's partly why he said no. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of Yahweh came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. He'd already been given this command, hadn't he? And he ran away. This time he gets it again. He's given a second chance. A lot of people don't get a second chance. He gets a second chance and he does the right thing. He goes. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Can you imagine how big a city would be to do that? Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. So uh, Nineveh is just a word to us. So um, I made a, just a, a few notes I took on it. So it was a large city in the Assyrian Empire, but at this point it was not the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. 
that would be another 70 years probably between the time of this story and when it was transitioned to be the capital. But that means it might have been the largest city at this point, most influential city. Um, it was huge, and we know that from ancient historians. The, the author here is reporting it rightly. Um, according to Herodotus, I want to say, the gates of the city, the wall of the city from end to end was 70 miles long. Can you imagine? He might have he exaggerated, but you know, if it's in the Bible, I just don't see any point in questioning it. It was a huge city. Um, and then it was destroyed. Real interesting thing about Assyrian history, the, the, the era we're, called, we're in, the modern historians called the Neo-Assyrian Empire. But it was growing and growing, getting wealthier and more powerful, and then all of a sudden there's some Babylonians who rebel, join forces with Medes, and the whole thing falls apart. It's like there was no infrastructure at all, which doesn't seem very likely at all. To me and many others, it seems as though God was done with them and he ended them like that, lickety-split. It fell apart so quick. They suffered, they suffered such utter destruction that uh, Nineveh, which was this huge city, just a couple hundred years later when Xenophon was walking by, he couldn't even recognize that anything had ever been there at all. And this was a place, I mean, they made huge stone buildings at this time. I mean, look at this. This is not a photo, but this is an artist. You know, we have samples of ancient Assyrian building. This is huge stoneworks that they would have built. This stuff doesn't easily fall apart. They suffered utter destruction. This was a huge, uh, powerful, civilized society that, that was brought to the ground just a couple hundred years later. So I hope that makes Nineveh a little more real to you. Jonah is entering a city that looks so, somewhat like this. It has an ancient wall around it and then hundreds, thousands of buildings, hundreds of thousands of people and animals, and into it he goes... You better believe there were other prophets of other religions there, right? I mean, if you've ever gone to a city, there's street preachers, even now in the age of social media, proclaiming their own prophecies. He, among all these other people, proclaims the message. It's not complicated. In 40 days, God's going to kill you all. That's it. We don't know how many times he proclaimed it. It says he went a day's journey, and he said it. He might have said it once. He might have said it all the way through. I, I don't re recall if, uh, if the Hebrew gives any indication. We're in verse 6 now, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh. So this is one of the things. So there's an empire, and it, did I say, okay, five. Excuse me, thank you. I'm not looking at you, Joe, sorry. I'm looking at Susanna. Just pay attention, girlfriend. Verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. You know, sackcloth is not a real popular fabric for people to buy anymore. But once upon a time, a lot of people seem to have sackcloth. You read throughout the Old Testament, this is something people wore when they were in mourning. Do people still enter a time of mourning in our culture? Not the way we used to. People do mourn. They do. But once upon a time, even in English-speaking modern Western nations, relatively, there would be people who wore all black for a period of time after a loss because they were in mourning. You would look at them and you would know that they were mourning. In ancient cultures, mourning was even more intense than that. They would put on sackcloth, which is itchy and uncomfortable, because they wanted their spirits to be 
wounded. And we naturally, we don't enjoy that. They wanted something physically to remind them, I'm miserable right now. I'm seeking the Lord in my woes, in my misery. They would sometimes put ashes on their head. And if, if a lot of people don't know this, when ashes interacts with water or sweat, it becomes acidic and stings. Very painful over a prolonged period of time, not fun. And a real serious fast, uh, well, they would fast as well, yeah. And fasting is something that only very recently did Christians stop doing. For over a, uh, 1,700 years, it was very common for Christians to have seasons of fasting, regular fasting. It's only very recently, we have to understand, it's only very recently we created a culture where we say we follow Jesus, but we don't do the hard, uh, painful things. We only do the things we want to do. It's a problem because what that results in, if you've read my article that I published yesterday, is we have three, four generations of Christians in America that are soft, that can't go through hard seasons. They fall away as soon as things get hard. It's because they haven't trained. If you train for anything in life, you, you push yourself to the limit. You go hard. You go to the heart. You know, Susie's in here practicing violin a few days a week. She goes until she's frustrated. She goes until her brain hurts, until her fingers hurt. When you run a marathon, how do you, you, you push till it hurts. When you're going to try and pass a test, you study till it hurts. You push yourself. For some reason, we think the only thing in the world that we think that you don't at all have to work toward, to get any better at is your relationship with Jesus. Yeah, you have to work on your relationship with your spouse. Yeah, you have to work on every other. But for some reason, it magically falls in place for Jesus. It's, it's, it's a modern day fiction. Anything that you don't work on, that you don't pay attention to, languishes, falls apart. Ancient people knew this. They knew they needed times of mourning, of suffering, of sorrow. They needed to enter into this. They heard about God's anger with them, and they were understandably upset. And they needed to do something about it. Here's a wonderful... Have you ever had anything that was wrong and you just couldn't do anything about it? You just couldn't fix it. You just couldn't do anything about it. How does it feel when that happens? That's about the worst feeling in the world. That's about the worst feeling in the world. That's not what's going on with us and sin. We've been given something to do about our sin. What's that thing? Repent. I say it every week. Every week, repent. And we're going to see the Assyrians do that. Let's look at verse 6. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued to Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Can you imagine? Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent. And with compassion, turn his fierce anger so that we will not perish. We've already seen in the story of Jonah, people who are outside of God's covenant people, non-Jews, behave faithfully. Remember the captain and his crew who moved Jonah to pray whenever he wanted to sleep? Who sought the Lord in prayer even whenever it was clear that Jonah was the one that had offended? We've already seen pagans be more faithful than the Jews. This is not meant to be a dig on the Jews. This is meant to be a dig on us, who are supposedly God's covenant people, and yet so often 
People who don't even know God have more energy for him than we do. And that's exactly the case here. They repent well. You know, when you, when you meet somebody who's sorrowing at their sin, okay, first off, most people know that they're sinners, but if you ask them to talk about their sin, they can't do it. They can't talk about it. Either they can't bear it or they've already forgotten it. Because we don't think about things that make us uncomfortable. It doesn't feel good to acknowledge we're a sinner. And yet, in James chapter 5, it says, Confess your sins to one another, that you might pray for one another. Because the prayers of the righteous are powerful and effective, right? But we don't confess our sins to one another. We might say, look to God, oh, I'm a sinner, I'm sorry. Back to my life. What's something else I can do to make me feel good? Is there something on TV? Is there something I can eat? Is there drugs I can do? Is the casino open? It's all the same beast. We're very uncomfortable being uncomfortable in Christ Jesus. And throughout the Bible, you have people who are continually, intentionally disciplining themselves because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Amen? Here, this king, here's this one-line prophecy from an ancient prophet, says, Yahweh's angry with you. And he says, guys, stop everything right now. We have to repent. Everybody get uncomfortable. Make your animals uncomfortable. Make sackcloth clothes for your donkeys and your cats. And your, I don't know that they kept cats out there. I don't know. But whatever animals they had, hundreds of thousands of animals, they can't eat, they can't drink. Everybody's wearing sackcloth around ashes. Can you imagine how miserable that city of millions of creatures is? What does God do? Does this please him? Verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. So here's a question for you. Is God pleased when we confess our sins and repent? God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And obviously there are differences between the old covenant and the new and how it is that God expects people who are in Christ to behave versus those who are not. There are some differences. But I would be very stringent, I would be very strict and say, actually, confessing our sins and repenting is not one of those differences. He expected it of the Jews. He expects it of us. The scandalous thing about this is these people are not even God's covenant people. These are not his chosen people. They're just random pagans that... Really, he hates because they've been attacking his people, but because they humble themselves before him, he relents and gives them more time. Now, they screwed it up, and he killed them, but before that, he was merciful and gracious. Next week, we're going to talk about the scandal of this story. This week, we need to meditate on this notion that God is pleased when we repent, confess our sins, and mourn our sins. Lord, who throughout these 40 days, right? That's what Lent is all about, is entering a time of intentionally going through the darkness and trusting God. As thou didst hunger, bear, and thirst, O teach us, gracious Lord, to mourn our sins and chiefly live by thy most holy word. There are things that we have to reclaim that nobody else around us is interested in reclaiming. You talk to everybody about reclaiming American wealth and prosperity and becoming world superpowers, everybody's on board with, for that. 
you start talking about we need to reclaim mourning and confession of sin and repentance. We need to reclaim that. That needs to be a daily part of our lives and people are going, "Mm, I don't know. I'd rather do an exciting mission in Thailand. Can we do that? No, this is, this is core key Christian faith. It's something where most of us are very weak. I'm not going to tell you who, but I actually learned, I'm bragging on somebody right now. There's somebody in our church who kept reading about the sackcloth stuff. And they said, I need some sackcloth. And so they ordered some sackcloth robes online, and they're going to wear it in times of mourning and repentance. That's really as complicated as faith needs to be. And rather than going through the Bible and going, okay, why? I don't have to do this part anymore, right? Why don't I? Because I don't want to. Okay, on to the next thing. That's not our relationship with the scriptures. Our relationship with the scriptures are people of faith continually go away from God. I need to be with God. How can I go back to what we've been given? A part of it is doing these things that please God. Yes, praise and worship pleases him, but that doesn't come to the exclusion of mourning, confession, repentance. So I've said it before. I'll say it again. If you don't have someone that you confess your sins to in the church, you need to find somebody. We're not Roman Catholics. I'm not the one that needs to hear everybody's dirty laundry. I will be your confessor if you want me to be. But you need someone whom you respect in the faith that you can confess your sins to and that you can have pray for you. Because if you don't have other people praying for you, I'm worried about you. I don't see how you can be forgiven if you're not confessing your sins and having someone intercede for you between you and God. A lot of people say, well, I can do it myself. Um. I'm not sure you can. When you open your Bibles, you encounter a faith that is by nature communal. It's not just you and Jesus. It's you and the body of Christ. And I know we live in a very independent age where we like to believe that the church is entirely optional and we don't need these people. We just choose to be with them. I would humbly submit to you that you actually need the people that you're worshiping with right now. That you need them like your life depends on it. As we saw Margie probably quite literally saved Cody's life yesterday. Even more important than that, the ministry that we do on one another can have an impact on our souls. And I know we like to think that we can't have an impact. We can, and we do. We need to be more vulnerable. We need to be open to what the Holy Spirit is doing to us through one another. If we keep that door closed, we're not going to go very far. So... I have no more slides to show you. I've said all the notes that I wanted to. I uh, sometimes have a great ending, and I don't today. Just that closing reflection. The last thing that we're going to do is sing together the hymn, Are Ye Able? And we're going to say, Lord, we are able. Our spirits are thine, so remold them. Make us. Make us like God divine. We believe in sanctification. We believe in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. We believe we can be holy as Christ is holy. Let's stand and sing about it. Hymn number 530, Are Ye Able?